Let's go ahead and uh, open up in prayer. Father, um, we thank you for, for your goodness and your graciousness. We thank you for your word, um, that we can read it and meditate upon it, that we learn from it. We thank you that you've provided um, models for us that we can learn from and we can uh, pattern our lives after. God, I ask that, uh, that as we read your word today, that you would, you would help us to see that, that you would motivate us and help us to see clearly who you are and, and how we are to live. Oh God, will you do that for us today? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, I've kind of had like a little bit of a rough week. You know, I, I bit my lip multiple times, so if I'm smiling kind of weird, that's why. I'm, maybe I need to learn to bite my lip figuratively when I'm speaking to people a little more, but, <laughs> but I actually bit my lip multiple times in the same spot. Um, but it always seems like the weeks that, that I'm, uh, I'm going to preach end up being hard, you know, just for, for many reasons. And, uh, and I, find, um, I find comfort in, when I read the Word of God because I'm like, yeah, maybe I bit my lip, but man, my life's going pretty good compared to some of the stories that I've read about. And, and as I was preparing this week, I thought about heroes. And um, when we think about heroes today... We usually uh, think about superheroes. It, our our culture is just inundated with it, right? It's in books and TV and movies, and uh, that's what we think about. We think about people that do um, uh, amazing things through these uh, supernatural powers. Um, and that's great. I love those stories. But it, as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, it's not, all, it's not the... It's not these amazing abilities that actually make them heroes. Um, it's, it's when they choose to uh, stand up for what is right, um, even if it's an unpopular decision. That's usually one of the central themes of what makes them a hero. And it's, and it's the fact that they're standing up for what is right or or, or defending somebody, or standing up for justice, or, or, or whatever you want to put around that. It's, it's the fact that they are doing that, and people are opposing them, that create that conflict and make the story so interesting. Um, the, the other thing that I've kind of thought about with heroes is that as they, um, in their moments of heroism, they probably aren't thinking about being a hero. They're probably just doing what they think is right. Um, I think about the heroes of our faith, the heroes of the Bible, and uh, the one that always comes to my mind, you know, uh, when I was like a, a young little boy learning about this kind of stuff, it keeps popping out, but, but David and Goliath. David and Goliath is what I think about when I think about just your, your good biblical story of heroism. And if you remember, you know, David is this teenage boy. He's a shepherd. He spends his time uh, with the sheep. And, um, and then you have Goliath, who's a 
We don't know exactly how tall, but a very tall uh, soldier that's opposing uh, the, the army of God, the army of Israel. And uh, he's kind of like the, uh, he's the challenger that's been put forth. Like, if anybody can go against him, you know, uh, like, he, he's drawn the line in the sand. And, uh, and then you have David, this teenage boy, that shows up on this battlefield. And, and picture it. Picture, picture the scene. You have this valley. And on one side, you have the armies of the living God. The army of Israel. And on the other side, you have uh, the army of the Philistines that oppose God. And you have this, uh, this warrior, this gigantic warrior out there calling out these people, defying God openly. And you have a teenager that shows up on the scene. And, and if you remember the story, what does he say? He says, who is this? uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the Lord. And his brothers, uh, David's brothers are a bunch of soldiers in the army and, they, um, and they're mocking him. They mock him. Eh, because it's easy to, to say something like that when you're behind the lines, right? But all the soldiers were shaking and they were scared. But David is not scared, and he goes out and faces Goliath. And we remember what happens. He takes out Goliath with just a sling and, and a stone. Man, that's a, that's a good story of heroism right there. And, and if you remember, it's almost comical, the scene, because um, they're, they're trying to outfit David with all this soldier's armor, and he's like a teenage kid. It doesn't fit. Like it, you know. So he's like, get that off of me. I'm just going to go out there. And in a true act of heroism, he defeats Goliath. I don't think David was thinking, man, I'm going to do this and people are going to remember this for centuries. People are going to think of me as a hero in this moment. I don't think he was doing that. I think he was doing what he said. He's not going to stand for this man to defy God openly, I'm going to stand up for God. I'm going to go out there. And he had confidence that God would work through him. Something that the rest of those uh, soldiers didn't have. That's, that's a picture of, of heroism that I think of. And as we uh, open our Bibles today to uh, Acts chapter 25, we're continuing in the book of Acts, we're going to see heroism again. And it may not be what you're thinking about. It may, not, it may not look the same, but that's one of my goals today is as we read through this, I'm hopefully going to point out some things that you begin to see. Wow, Paul is a hero of the faith. That's what I hope we see. So Acts chapter 25, we're going to begin in verse 12. And we're going all the way to the end, verse 27. And before we read the two main things that you're going to see today is that God works seemingly ironic circumstances to bring about his will. God works seemingly ironic circumstances to bring about his will. And also, we don't have to be intimidated by vain and vaunting pomp. We don't have to be intimidated by vain and vaunting pomp. 
So read with me, Acts uh, 25, beginning in verse 12. We're going to read this whole passage uh, in one shot because it's really a recap of everything that we've been discussing. uh, And uh, there's a a lot of irony and there's a lot of things working that that I'm going to point out. But we're going to read it all together. Acts 25, beginning in verse 12. Then when Festus had conferred with his council, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. He's saying this to Paul. Now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, You see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. Since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Now, if you're paying attention and you haven't fallen asleep yet, you're probably like, Really, Chris? You, you read that passage and you got Paul as a hero? I did. And, and let me explain. We're going to talk about that. The first thing that we see that points to this is, is that God works seemingly ironic circumstances to bring about his will. This is uh, the irony of civil justice on display right now. And there's three main things that, that bring out this irony. The first is that Festus sees Paul as innocent. 
The governor that has the authority over Paul recognizes that he's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything wrong. And the irony is, he still doesn't release him. He doesn't release him. And he doesn't release him for two reasons. The first is because Festus is uh, feeling indecision. It's, it's said earlier that he wanted to do the Jews a favor. So he's like, oh, man, the guy's innocent, but I don't really know what to do. And remember, Paul had been held in prison for two years. Two years. By the previous governor, Felix. And as Joe mentioned, uh, one of the main reasons Felix didn't release him was because he was hoping to get some money out of him, right? So you see this, uh, this corrupt judge, this corrupt governor holding Paul in prison. Now it's a new person, Festus, and it's, it's kind of this indecision of Festus that's holding him there. But it's also the appeal to Caesar. Paul's own appeal to Caesar is part of what's holding him prisoner here. And this, uh, this appeal is really interesting. You, you know, it, it opened with Festus saying, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Um, these appeals were a fairly normal part of Roman um, uh, legal procession. It, but there's some debate about it in this circumstance because typically an appeal to Caesar would have some type of capital offense um, going on. And Festus is like, he hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything that's, that's worthy of being put to death. Really, it's just a it, it's disagreement about uh, Jewish religion and, and things like that. So he should go back to Jerusalem. But Paul knows he won't get a fair trial, as Joe mentioned uh, last week. So he says, I appeal to Caesar. This is just the first instance of this passage where we see just irony. He's declared innocent by the judge over him, but yet the judge is like, um, I'm not going to release him. I've got to send him to Caesar. So the main, problem is not, um, the main problem is not whether Paul is innocent or not. The main problem is, what do I say to Caesar? What do I write to Caesar about what he's done? I have, I have to give some sort of um, justification for why I'm sending him, and I, I, don't, I don't actually have any. So please, uh, Agrippa, please help me out here. That's pretty ironic. The second thing that we see, this irony at work here, is that it's the pagan state of Rome, right? Rome is... Um, Rome is this state that, that just has idolatry like all over the place. That's, that's, the, type of, uh, that's the type of culture that, that Rome was known for. And it's this pagan state's own legal procedure that's actually protecting Paul from murderous plots coming from God's nation, coming from Jews, and Jews that say that they are living in accordance with God's own law. If we saw the scene, it would be like, I, I can't believe this. I can't. Paul, the messenger of God, is seen by uh, this governor as being completely innocent, and yet it's this pagan law system that's actually protecting him from the people of God who want to kill him. I... I imagine as Luke is like observing this and, and he's beginning to, to write this out, he's like, man, 
nobody's going to believe this. Like, this is, this is ridiculous. This is absurd. But that's, that's the situation that we have here. So that's the, that's the second thing of irony that we see working out here. And the third thing is the, the pomp of it all. It has to do with Agrippa and Bernice now arriving. And I have a hard time saying pomp without also saying pomp and circumstance, but I'm going to do my best. I might switch it up. Maybe it's just not pomp. Maybe it's a, just a proud um, display of grandiosity to try to, to show that they're important, okay? But all of that is wrapped up into that word pomp, okay? It's very ironic. And at first reading, you're like, okay, yeah, maybe not. But, but let's, let's consider it. Um, the historical background of, of kind of what's going on. This is King Agrippa, Agrippa II, all right? Um, and, and if you think about uh, what, uh, where he came from, he came through the Herodian family line. And you think about, uh, you know, Herod and, and all the, the line of Herod and how... Uh, that line has been on the side or against Jesus and how that's kind of played out. There's, there's a lot of backstory there, right? But, he, but even more than that, even more than that, you've got Agrippa here who gives deference to, uh, to Caesar at the time, but yet Agrippa is actually part Jewish. And he's in charge. He's been given the authority to, to appoint the, the Jewish high priest. So you've got uh, the Jewish high priest and the council with these charges against Paul, and yet Festus, who's feeling a lot of indecision and needs to know how to send him to Caesar and what to write about, he turns to Agrippa, who is supposedly someone that understands Jewish customs and Jewish laws and things like that. But you're already seeing a little bit of a problem because of Agrippa's corruption and what's going on there. In fact, uh, Bernice, his sister, was kind of seen with him almost everywhere. And it was widely known, widely known, that they were probably involved in some type of tawdry, incestuous relationship. And in fact, uh, before this moment, Bernice uh, had at least one husband that we know of, uh, maybe two, and, and, uh, and now she's living with her brother, having this incestuous relationship. This is the backdrop of what's going on here. And when we read it, we don't always like, get that right away, but uh, we have historical uh, writings uh, about Agrippa and Bernice. This is, um, Paul would have known this backstory. Luke would have known this backstory. Uh, it's likely that after the book of Acts is written, the readers, the first readers of the book of Acts probably would have intuitively understood this backstory of Agrippa and Bernice. And, and that's, that's what makes this interesting, right? That's what makes this um, ironic, is you have Paul, a servant of God, who is recognized as being innocent, having done nothing wrong, and he's being judged in this grand uh, show trial by people who have not a lick of character to their name. When you consider it, you're like, man, 
something's wrong here. The world is a little bit upside down. That's kind of crazy. And if you remember, uh, Caesarea is right on the coast of the Mediterranean. And it's likely that where they, held this, uh, where they held this trial where Festus invited Agrippa and Bernice and all the important people of Caesarea to come and, 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 and listen to Paul, where they held it was this um, um, kind of like a temple, but it's a big open air um, uh, building with big columns and, and uh, right on the coastline. So you can imagine, you can Im- just try to picture it in your mind. Try to picture it. You have the breeze. You can smell the salt water. You can hear the waves. It's a pretty amazing setting, just the backdrop for this. And then in this, in this open-air building, you've got Agrippa and his sister Bernice. And you've got uh, these beautiful robes and, and likely jewelry and everything that shows, I'm important. And you've got all the important people of Caesarea joining in in this. And then at Festus' command, he orders them to bring in Paul, the man who he says is innocent. And in comes Paul, shackled. Manacled, dragging his chains on the floor. Likely in prisoner's garb. This messenger of God, whom is admittedly innocent, is brought before these people. that don't have an ounce of character against them. Supposedly Jewish, but they sit in a a Roman place of authority. Openly defy God's laws. Do you see this? Do you see the irony of the scene? And we're about to hear what Paul's defense is, what he says to them, but that's actually going to be next week, so I'm just... A little, little bit of wetting your appetite for that. Joe's going to preach on that, and it's going to be awesome. And not to give too much away, but essentially, I mean, it's, it's one of the most magnificent speeches in all of the New Testament, but essentially his defense is the gospel. So you got to come back next week because it's going to be awesome. But the scene, the setup of this is what I want you to see. The irony of it. It doesn't make any sense. These people shouldn't be standing in judge over Paul. And yet here he is before them. And I know you're probably still thinking, how did you get Paul as a hero in this situation? I'm getting there. I'm getting there, okay? But as I was preparing this and I thought back uh, about our road trip, um, I thought about these ironic situations that Paul is in, and yet God is using them to bring about his will. He's, bring, he's using them to, to uh, lay the, the path for Paul to Rome. Because remember, what did, what did God tell Paul? He said, you, you are going to testify in Rome about me. So Paul's probably like, well, I ain't in Rome yet. I guess I'll just keep testifying here. I'm going to get to Rome. 
Maybe that was why he appealed to Caesar. It might have been a part of it. I think it's pretty cool. Maybe Paul was like, oh, I'm getting to Rome. I'm going to get to Rome on the government's dime. I don't care if I'm in shackles. I'm going to, I'm going to preach Christ. I'm going to preach Christ to whoever's going to listen. And I'm literally being invited in before, uh, before kings, before governors, before rulers. And I get to tell them about Christ? This is sweet. Put me on that ship. I'm going to Rome. I appeal to Caesar. I think that's a little bit what's going on. Um, and it, as I was preparing and I was reflecting about uh, our road trip that we were on, I think it's ironic, I think it's funny, and I think it's tied together that um, when we drive our cars, and, and you know like that scene where like you're about to go over a hill, but you can't see what's on the other side of the hill at all, but then in the distance you see another hill with like another little road, and then a little bit further you see another hill with like another little road, and you just like, it's probably all connected, there's probably pavement on the other side of this hill, I hope there's not traffic coming at me in our lane, right? But I just find it funny that like, I don't, I don't slow down. I got my cruise control set. And I'm just, I go over the hills or in Texas, you know, 287, some of those blind turns and stuff like that. I don't slow down. I just keep going. Why? Because I trust that there's going to be pavement there. I'm essentially trusting that someone has put in the work to lay the path for me. We don't slow down to nothing to try to like peek around the turn or peek over the hill and be like, okay, all right, whew, all right, we're good. Now, now I'm back off and running. We don't do that. I think that's kind of like what's happening here. Paul knows he's going to Rome because God said he was going to go to Rome and God is faithful. He may not know how he's getting there, but now he's like, yeah, I appeal to Caesar. You guys got to figure out now how to get me over to Caesar. That's how this works. So God works seemingly ironic circumstances to bring about his will. Um, that's what we see. Uh, the next thing we see is that Paul is not intimidated by this uh, vain and vaunting pomp. He's not intimidated by it, by this, by this show of pride and grandiosity. And because he's not intimidated by it, we don't have to be either. Consider this. I love, I, I love this quote. This is from uh, Chuck Swindoll, which I just, I love so much of his writing. And, and, uh, and when he speaks, it, it, it's always so good. But, but uh, just listen to what he has to say here. He's talking about Agrippa. And he says, uh, though only 32, he enjoyed a certain amount of respect among the Jewish people. Herod I, this is uh, Agrippa's father, uh, also had two daughters, Drusilla and Bernice, and you remember, we saw Drusilla previously, all right, um, in, in the passages that Joe just preached on. Uh, he had two daughters, Drusilla and Bernice. And Felix married Drusilla, whom he had lured away from her husband in the heat of an illicit affair. Drusilla's sister, Bernice, was also Herod's sister. Bernice and Agrippa were embroiled in an incestuous relationship. The whole family was a mess of ethical corruption and gross immorality. And strangely, these are the judges who've come to sit in judgment on Paul. And then he goes on, he says, the court was a circus. 
Character was conspicuous by its absence, and Luke must have shaken his head in disbelief as he recorded every sordid detail, including the pompous procession of Agrippa's staged entrance into the open-air auditorium. When you see that, you're like, wow. It's really set up for Paul to kind of be a little bit scared. He's among these powerful people that wield such authority. He's got uh, the Jewish people who should be defending him. They're his people, and they're the ones that are calling for his death. And now he's sitting in front of these rulers that are just corrupt. They don't really want justice. They just want him to go away. They want life to get back to normal so that they can live their lives and continue in their relationship with one another. And yet, Paul's not scared. He's not scared. He's not intimidated by this. He's not intimidated by this by this show of, of power or, or empty authority, he's not intimidated. We don't have to be intimidated either. When we see situations that, that are ironic and that are meant to uh, in, intimidate us about our faith or, or about what's going on, you can always fall back on the fact that we can trust God in his directing path of our lives. It's not easy, but it's true. We don't have to be intimidated. Um, I, th I think this is really good. Chuck Swindoll says this earlier in, this, uh, in his book. He says, uh, talking about Paul, he says, he never got over his profound appreciation he had a debt of gratitude to discharge. And because of that, Paul rose above the pomp and pretense of Rome. With fierce resolve, the man stood tall for the eternal cause of Christ. There's no intimidation in him because he's going to stand tall for Christ. And, and when he's doing that, he knows that God is going to be faithful. I find it amazing. But when we read it, we're like, this whole scene is kind of absurd. He's, he's on a show trial. He's declared innocent. And yet he appeals to Caesar and, and this is what's going on. And, and by Festus' own admission at the end, he says, for it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him also. Yeah, it is absurd. The whole thing is ridiculous. I'd like to think that if I was in that situation, I would uh, be able to be cool, calm, and collected like Paul, but I, I know myself really well, and I, I, I suspect I, I, I would have moments of panic. Remember, he's in prison for two years? Two years? That's crazy. And yet he's just cool, calm, and collected. I can't wait till I can meet him, you know? 
And I, and I can't wait till, till we can all stand with the heroes of our faith and be able to see this and to see them, be able to see Jesus clearly. When I think about um, what makes Paul a hero here, it's the fact that he doesn't get intimidated. And when I kept thinking about it, I thought of three things that, um, that kind of characterizes Paul and um, helped him in this moment. First, his clarity of who Christ is. His clarity. And that's why I love that quote uh, about his profound appreciation for God. When you see clearly who Jesus is and what he's done, the grace and mercy that he has shown us, that should instill such an amount of gratitude in you. Gratitude in myself as well. I like that new song, Gratitude, because I don't ever want to see the day where I forget who Jesus is, where I begin to think I've arrived, where I begin to think um, I'm... I'm worthy. I did this on my own. What a horrible day that would be. I want to be able to see Jesus so clearly that I always remember the gratitude that I have and that that clarity would, would spur me on to continue in the calling that he's given me. Clarity of who Christ is. That's what we see. Out of that clarity comes confidence. Confidence. Confidence in who God is, but also what he is doing. Paul can be confident because he's, uh, he's been told what's going to happen. He's going to go to Rome and he's going to testify. So this isn't the end. I'll sit in prison and I'll wait and I'll be patient. I, I know I'm going to be there. I know I'm going to be in Rome. Confidence. When we think of Paul, we think of boldness. He's not scared to to share Christ with people. And we're going to see that next week, and I'm excited about it. But that confidence to be able to stand up, to preach Christ, that's what we see. And then the other thing is commitment. Commitment. Commitment to who Jesus is commitment to continue to live his life for Jesus. No matter what comes. Do you see that? You know, I, I think sometimes when, when we uh, read through Acts, we can get this picture of Paul that he's like, he's just perfect. But when we read other New Testament writings, we know that he struggled with things. We know that like he, he prayed for the thorn to be removed from his flesh, right? He prayed again and again and again and and God did not remove it, right? We, we know that Paul did indeed struggle with things, but the thing that makes him a hero here is that he didn't stop. He stayed committed to Christ even in the midst of his struggles. He trusted in God, had confidence in God, even when he couldn't see what was coming up around the bend, what was coming up over the hill. 
That's what makes him a hero here. His clarity of who Christ is, his confidence in the Lord, and his commitment. I hope that the same can be true of us. Um, The other thing that I thought about as I was preparing, that word pomp, the first thing that popped into my head when I was... um, when I was thinking about this, is the whole, uh, don't you know who I am kind of mindset. Some, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you might not. But um, my wife, Katria, used to tell me this story. She grew up as an Air Force brat. And so she would work on base. She worked in APHES as like a teenager. And um, there were many moments of, don't you know who my husband is that she had to experience. And some of you are laughing because you're like, oh, I've seen that kind of stuff. And for those of you that haven't, just wait. You will, because people want to be seen as important and special. And, and if you don't recognize that, um, they're going to maybe let you know. And that's, that's what Agrippa and Bernice and, and Festus is all doing here. Don't you know who we are? We're important. We're special. We have whole regions that we command. Don't you know who we are? And this is what I thought as I, was, as I was preparing. I thought Paul was saying something like this. I know who you are, but I know who God is. I know you, but I know God. I know you've got a lot of sway but I know God. I know God is just. I know God is holy. I know God is good. I know God is gracious. I know God is faithful. There are moments in your life where you're going to be met with intimidation where you're going to think about the things that are surrounding you and it will be ironic because you just won't understand how things got to this point. How did we end up here? What is going on? None of this makes sense. It's the world is flipped over on its head. How could these people be in positions of authority? None of this is right. And when you feel that moment, that someone is saying, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? I hope that we can remember this and we'll be able to say, I know who you are, but I know who God is. And I hope that we will see Jesus so clearly that when given the opportunity, we won't shy away but we will be confident. We will be confident. And we'll be committed to God. Because here's the thing. Um, you don't need some like hammer that, that's going to help you fly around and shoot lightning bolts or a, or a big you know, energy blast coming from your chest to, to actually be a hero. You don't. Real heroes are made in moments where they don't think they're doing anything special. 
They're just doing what they think is right. They are standing up for what is right because it's what God says is right. Because they see God clearly and they are confident in him and they are committed to him. That's what makes Paul a hero here. That's what makes David a hero when he faces Goliath. I'm sure David was awesome with a, with a sling and a stone. But it was because of his confidence in the Lord that turned him into a hero that day. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for examples like this. I thank you um, that you, you record again and again and again in your word that you are faithful. Thank you for, uh, for stories of people that, that while they're not perfect, they, um, they still choose to, to stand on your word, to stand up for who you are, that they won't shy away from who Christ is, but that they are going to tell everyone over and over again the good and gracious works of your son, Jesus. Oh God, I thank you for that. I ask that you would help us to be people that are characterized just like that, that you would, that you would spur us on, that we would not shy away when, when things seem ironic and, and um, when, it, when it just seems like uh, we should be intimidated. Oh God, would you help us see you clearly? Would you help us have confidence in who you are and your plan? And when you help us to stay committed to your son, Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.